certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, court heard from a Perth taxi driver who says he avoided Claremont because it was too much trouble. Welcome today, 82 of Claremont in Conversation with Natalie Bongiolo, Emily Moulton and Alison Fan. So um, again, while court waited until it was a reasonable hour in the UK to continue with Dr Palmer's cross-examination, Ali, some very interesting witness statements were read in, including that of a former, former cabbie. Absolutely. In fact, some of these um, witness statements that they're squeezing in are sort of overtaking the interest of the actual uh, testimony. But um, taxi driver Alan Ladbrook painted a very unflattering picture of, of Claremont, the very upmarket western suburb where the three girls disappeared from. And he said that he actually avoided Claremont, but preferred Northbridge, which we've all led to believe is a, is a more of a uh, wilder area than Claremont. He said because the drunks were volatile, the women were the worse than the men, and that when he used to go and pick up nightclub goers outside Club Bayview, they would try to kick in the car doors because the taxi queues were so long and overall very, very badly behaved. And um, he was one of the taxi drivers that, of course, had to give um, his DNA swab when thousands were uh, taxi drivers were called in to uh, take part in the investigation because at one stage they did think it was a taxi driver involved. He said he couldn't remember whether he worked on the night that Jane Rimmer disappeared, but most of his work um, at weekends were hail jobs. And he was just a, a, one of the witnesses that was squeezed in today as we were waiting to connect with the uh, UK mm. um Professor. I mean, I guess it does paint a picture of uh, just how busy it was in Claremont in those days. And um, now this particular cabbie, uh, he's one of the taxi drivers who drove a cab number that was mentioned in last night's podcast. Yeah, he was um, the uh, driver of um, cab 409. I think initially in his first statement he couldn't remember, but then it was obviously pointed out. And they were, there was two um, numbers in last night's evidence that they pointed out that um, they were working in the area, but between, I think, from 8 o'clock um, in the evening on June 8 and between and 11 a.m., I think, June 9, they were the only two sort of dispatch jobs that he had. Um, but then in his subsequent statement, he said that he, you know, most of the time on the weekends he did, got most of his work through hail jobs. So, but he just couldn't account for sort of where he was. He couldn't remember um, who he picked up and, and um, throughout that evening anyway. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, like there was quite a few. And I think back then there was like, that's pretty much how most of those those cabbies got their jobs. They would just wait at the taxi ranks, wait for people to come out. And, and that's why he sort of said that, you know, the, the, the queues outside Club Bay View, like the the like patrons coming out, would get sort of a bit aggressive because there was such a long queue for taxis in that area. Yeah, and was it any clearer why these particular cab numbers were singled out? Um, was it because he simply drove a Holden Commodore station wagon? Do you know? I mean, the I think- thing was that taxi drivers were under suspicion anyway because everybody was trying to figure out what sort of a car would a young girl get into without hesitating mm. and everybody said a taxi so they did come under a lot of flack and um, I guess with his taxi number coming up maybe a couple of times because they would have gone to the same area knowing that picking up uh, 
passengers always waiting in queues, even though he was a reluctant driver to go down there, he knew he was guaranteed to get a fare. And he said he could earn up to, what, $300 a night. So um, even though he he wasn't mad about the actual nightclub (laughs) patrons there, he could earn up to $300 a night. Which is a lot of money back in the the 1990s. Em, you also heard from a former colleague of Bradley Edwards, and he turned out to be a key player in the fibre evidence. Yeah, so I think it was Andrea Biondo. Um, he um, he worked. He said he basically worked with um, Bradley Edwards back in 1990 at the Leadable Depot, um, and he said he only worked with him about six months, and then he went off and took extended leave and moved to northern Vietnam, and then went to work for Telstra in Victoria. Um, then, he, then um, in his statement, he said that in 2017, WA police contacted him um, because they knew he had worked with Mr. Edwards and had asked him about him. But he said, you know, he only worked with him sort of for that six-month period and then also asked him if he had any uniforms. But then sort of in the course of the statement, which is so much of this trial where there's always little tidbits of information, um, his statement said that he had, like, he remembered being in a car accident with Mr oh. Edwards when he was wearing these brown overalls, one of the pairs that he gave to um, the police. But then couldn't, didn't, it, it, the, the statement didn't go on to explain what, what that accident was, like, you know, did it, was anyone injured? But all he said that he was just wearing those brown overalls when the accident happened oh. and that he also gave a blue pair of o- overalls to police. But as we as we know, that the overalls weren't really, um, weren't, um, the uniforms that were said to be um, the critical fibres were said to match. They were actually the Telstra blue pants and shorts that they were said to match. But, yeah, it was just another one of those things like, um, where someone said some tiny little bit of information but then it just doesn't go anywhere. Yes, yeah. And you also <laughs> heard uh, from another very interesting witness who uh, was a cold case detective and now he had this bizarre job of finding out about the TV show The X-Files. Yeah, um, we all like sort of when they first said that um, this, uh, he was like Detective Senior Constable um, Robert Lindsay um, from the Cold Case Squad and he basically was tasked with corroborating the evidence of Mr Edwards' former housemate and the man who ended up having the affair with his first wife. And um, basically his statement was that he was asked to chat, to check the exact time the TV program The X-Files aired on Channel 10 back in the mid-1990s. And as um, if, if listeners remember back when this man gave his evidence that um, he said that sort of the relationship between um, himself and Mr Edwards' first wife sort of began because they began watching The X-Files together and then sort of, you know, then their relationship ended up becoming sexual. So um, this detective um, went to the State Library and went through newspaper clippings and found copies of the West Australian's TV Guide and confirmed that, yes, indeed, The X-Files aired at 8.30pm every Wednesday evening back then. (laughs) Um, But it also, yeah. It also makes you realise how long this trial's been going because when he talked about that, it just seemed like 100 years ago we heard that evidence, didn't it? All my notebooks are still locked up. In lockdown at the courts, and I, I could just vaguely remember over that. And of course, he talked about the fireworks. Yeah, so he was also asked to then um, go search for when um, fireworks are held in the Rockingham area. And if, if listeners remember um, when the first wife gave evidence, um, and, and also like the state's case is that you know around the time um, Sarah Spears went missing was around um, Australia Day fireworks and. 
So the first wife, wife had said that when after she moved out of the marital home, she went and stayed with her parents and that Miss Edwards had come down to see her and, and she'd asked her to go see the fireworks. So they were, so then when she gave her evidence, she, she couldn't remember when these fireworks were. So one of the tasks um, Detective Senior Constable um, Lindsay was asked to do was to find out when fireworks were held in the Rockingham area. And um, he basically checked both local papers, the Sound Telegraph and the Weekend Courier, and found there were two firework events um, held during the time period between July 95 and June 96. And one was held on November in November 1995 and then another one was on New Year's Eve. But neither sort of corresponding with, with the time period that Mr Edwards' first wife had said um, he'd come down to, to see her and asked her to go see the fireworks. Although we mm. had heard from a previous police officer who uh, had found out that there had been Australia Day fireworks in Mandra, yes. which is just around yes. the corner. Yes, right. Yeah. Yes, and that yeah. was the time. That was the crucial date, of course, Australia Day. Yeah. Um, the, the 26th, the usual fireworks. In fact, there's fireworks all over yeah. Western Australia on that day, apart from the, the main ones. But uh, that was that was interesting because I just didn't realise. I mean, that was very – that was probably back in November, December we listened to this and where it's just – putting it all together again, squeezing yes. these little witnesses in. She's um, actually sort of tying up the loose ends and uh, things that we haven't heard about, popping them in uh, as I get to finish the prosecution's case. Yeah, that's right. And I guess this goes back to the emotional upset, which we heard about in the early days, uh, because I think the the uh, X-Files, it aired in January of 1995. And, of course, we know that three weeks after it aired that um, – Mr. Edwards attacked a young girl walking home from Claremont. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that'll be interesting about whether that's tied up. I don't know if that's going to come into next week's in-camera evidence about his emotional state. And I don't know, is that all part of the evidence that's been accepted? We have heard that the prosecution has said that every event matched an emotional upset in Mr. Edwards's life, love life, uh, when the when there was breakups and other uh, events happening in his life that he allegedly went out and randomly picked someone and murdered them. I mean, that's the prosecution's case. I don't know what we're going to hear next week, which will, will that be part of the propensity or? Well, um, I think what's what's going to happen ne- next week, um, I think Monday we're not too sure what witnesses Will be will be heard, but we know that at some point next week we will get to the police interview with Mr. Edwards, and then after that, once the the prosecution finishes its case, um, Justice Hall has said he will then rule on the emotional upset evidence. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. So then this afternoon, four p.m. Perth, Perth time. 9am UK time, Dr Palmer continued giving his evidence. Now, Mr Jovic asked about whether the fibres in a deceased person's hair would have been there for a long time or not. Yeah, so um, Dr Palmer had given evidence um, yesterday or the day before about um, how long fibres can persist in a person's hair. And in a living person, he said that they can still stay in your hair even three days after it's been washed. And then seven days if it's not, not washed and Last night they sort of talked about um, that there's been no real studies done on deceased, like on fibres um, staying in deceased person's hair, but that Dr Palmer is actually working on a study or has worked on a study and, and is in the midst of trying to get it published. But basically he said that it's more likely that um, if fibres are found on a deceased person, it's come from their, their home environment. So then 
And then when you exclude those, then it's actually the most recent place they had been. Um, but then one of the things that Mr Jovic was trying to sort of, I guess, press Ms. Dr Palmer on was whether or not he, you could say that um, the fibres that were in the deceased person's hair, whether they actually got there in the hours before their death, because obviously depending on what their movements were, they could have been anywhere between 12 hours or 24 hours. So he was sort of saying that, you know, can you say for certain that, that the fibres found in their hair were found, like were got there just before they died? And, of course, then, you know, Dr Palmer said it depends on the circumstances, but then, you know, basically... He agreed no, yeah. He agreed no, no like he <laughs> couldn't put it down to a particular time frame. Yeah, so very difficult to actually narrow it down, which is, you know, that's fibres. Um, it's not as uh, cut and dry as, for instance, some of the DNA evidence that we've already heard. He also yeah. asked Dr Palmer about the fibres in a car and uh, a car that's had multiple owners, such as Mr Edwards' car. It's interesting because I found his answers sort of a bit... Uh, academic in a way um to use his words neutral he he's used the word strong as you've already heard uh re relating to jane being in the car and very strong relating to kira being in the car and of course um paul jovich today as a defense lawyer wanted to push and press that some of the fibers could have come from the hotel that both women had been to that's the hotel continental where there was fiber transfer um, he didn't give a definitive yes or no. He would use the words uh, neutral or um, we can't play too, place too much significance on that because he did agree that it, um, the only thing was that, yes, Jane was at the Continental, but there was nine months between when Jane was at the Continental in June 1996 and when Kira was there in March 1997, he said that would have to have a, be a considerable influence on the fibre contact and also the fact, as we heard earlier, that they were um, from uh, the car that Mr Edwards drove. But what I found interesting was that the um, examination, the final questions, came from the judge himself, Justice yeah. Paul, wanted to know, and he wanted to clarify that um, when he asked Dr Palmer about his evidence that the combination of fibres found on both women, how it led to his conclusion that they had come from the Holden VS Commodore that was driven by Mr Edwards when he worked for Telstra in the hours before their deaths. And he questioned again, he said, because um, didn't the interiors from both the Commodore uh, match that from a fleet of other uh, Commodores that were also driven by Telstra workers? And... Um, I don't know. Did you get a definitive reply to that? It, it just sort of... Yeah, just... so I guess because Justice I think um, Justice Hall was trying to sort of ask, because in, in Dr Palmer's conclusions, um, he, he basically said that he was asked, you know, whether or not um, he was asked to look at the, the, the reports in the whole, in the context of did um, were they in the in this particular car, the Holden VS Commodore yes. that Mr Edwards drove while he worked for Telstra? And one of the things that we've sort of heard when um, Reese Powell was on the stand from the Chem Centre is that they tested a whole heap of other Holden VS Commodores and they basically said that, that between, I think, I think the, for that model, I think it was 95 to 96, possibly 97, that they all had this particular um, interior trim, which was called 25I, 
which meant the colours were all like they had to like basically all those models or the all like for that sort of year range those year ranges um, had that had that carpet had that the same seat fabric and all that sort of stuff so what Justice Hall was getting at today he was going well how can you say it came from this particular car when there were other Holdens that matched that had the same fibres so therefore his point was well then it goes to reason to say that Telstra also had a whole fleet of other Holden VS Commodores and that other Telstra employees also used those Commodores so and and Dr Palmer kind of said well he understood that a lot of effort had gone in to establishing that the, the victims weren't in any Holdens um, That's right, yes. prior yeah. to their death. And, he, and Justice Hall was like, yes, like he was aware of that, but he was saying he was sort of making the point, well, how can you conclude? He goes, shouldn't you be rephrasing your conclusion to say mm. that it could be consistent that they had been in, in a Holden VS Commodore that Not was typically used by, yeah, 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 by yeah. a Telstra employee rather than this particular Holden VS Commodore? And I think that was the point that he sort of hammered home. Um, and well, at the end, did well, did Dr. Palmer said it? Yes, he'd only been asked about this particular car. Yeah, but he did. He did concede. He that, did concede. Yeah, that, yep. yeah, that it was um, possible to say that the combination of fi- fibres found on both women, which was you know the the fibres from the car and the fibres from the Telstra uniforms, that um, that it, you could say that it came because they they were found on both women that it could be come from a car. That yes. had been driven by a Telstra employee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Emily, I also found very interesting uh, the line of questioning about the blue fibres found on the shorts of the Karakata rape victim. Yes. So one of the things that Mr. Jovic was trying to point out was that because Mr. Edwards has pleaded guilty to this offence, to the rape of, of the 17 year old girl back in February 1995, he was saying, well, if Mr. Edwards hadn't been driving, his Telstra car and he wasn't wearing his uniform on the night of the the attack, how can you say that the fibres came from the trousers? Dr Palmer had, like, he said it, like, he was basically saying that the the fibres could have been transferred to the victim via secondary transfer, so not necessarily meaning direct contact from the clothing that he was wearing, although, well, not direct contact from the Telstra uniform if he was wearing it, but perhaps he was wearing other clothing that had part of, like, that may have had a fibre that belonged to the Telstra clothes or that it was for by being in the car. But then Mr Jovic was trying to say, well, she had been out at, um, she'd been out in the city with her friends and she'd been out, out at Club Bayview and she was in Claremont. So he was saying that perhaps the source could come from any number of sources. And um, Dr Palmer was saying, well, you know, while it's possible, he basically said that this was extremely unlikely to the point that it begs credibility. But then Mr Jovic then sort of raised that as, you know, a possibility for both Jane and Kira because he was saying, well, you know, it could be said the same for both of them. And he pointed out that both of them had been out with friends and colleagues at the Continental Hotel um, and on nights which were extremely busy where they were standing shoulder to shoulder and bumping into each into other people on the night. And he basically said, you know, this was fertile ground, ground for fiber transfer. Um, but Dr Palmer said, yes, it's possible that you can pick up fibres in that way. And then because Mr Jovic had suggested, well, you know, isn't it possible that they could pick up the same fibres or a, a group of common fibres because they were both in the same venue, essentially. 
Um, and Dr. Palmer said, like, he agreed, but he said because of the time period yeah. between each visit. So Jane was in the Continental in June 96 and Kira in March 97. He just said that, you know, that's a considerable assumption to make given the time period and it's probably less likely to be that way. Yeah, so that's basically sort of how we sort of ended sort of that and, and disagreed with um, Mr. Jovic sort of suggesting that, you know, um, if the, there were other groups of found it, fibers found on both women that are not attributed to Mr. Edwards, then you know that would increase the likelihood that they had con- both had contact with another person. Um, but Dr. Palmer disagreed with that um, suggestion completely. Yeah, I found Dr. Palmer to be a very interesting witness. And so that now uh, completes the state's fibre evidence. And as mentioned, next week uh, we'll be back when Mr. Edwards, um, that police interview will be played in the court. And Tim told us last night that although it's a six-hour interview, it probably will only be uh, four and a half hours or so uh, because they've had to take out some of the material. And also prosecution up expected maybe to wrap up their case by Thursday. So that's very interesting that we really are getting towards the uh, pointy end there. Yeah, um, but with, yeah, the, the, the police interview probably, it's we don't know for certain, but probably the only chance we'll get to hear from Mr Edwards. Mm-hmm. So that that's going to be very interesting, I think. All right, well, thank you both very much for this week and the very late night. That wraps up week 20. Have a good weekend, everyone. You can contact us at Podcast at wanews.com.au. We'll catch you Monday for day 83 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.